Open your Bibles with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We want to consider Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church today and what it has in store for us along the lines of the theme that we have been considering, and that is a personal relationship with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's addressed in this passage, and we want to use this passage today like we used Revelation chapter 3 last Lord's Day. I appreciate all the prayers that have been offered up already in the psalm that we've had presented to us, Psalm 128, and the martyr that we have heard about. May we humble ourselves before the Word of God and learn from Him now about our own personal relationship with God. I hope you all have your Bibles open, and I want you all to look at your Bibles for Ephesians chapter 3, and I want to read to you verses 14 through 19. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Let us read the Word of God again. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen Amen and amen. This is his precious word, and what a word it is to us today. Ephesians chapter 3. Filled with God, this may be the most important subject I can possibly preach to you. Last Sunday I preached to you about a similar subject from Revelation chapter 3, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ entering your life and your heart, and you supping with Him, and He with you. This is the highest level of spiritual religion. It's what we want to aim for as Christians. It's an offer. It's a prayer request, and it's a promise that's beyond belief. If you look at this passage carefully, you can see that it's an offer. Some are going to have it and some are not. Just like Revelation chapter 3, some have it. Let's say few have it. Most do not. And it's also a prayer request because the apostle is praying for this measure of God's relationship with the church at Ephesus. And it's a promise of what God is able and will do. It's not mysticism. We don't follow nuns or monks and their mysticism of meditation, transcendental meditation if you're from the East, or other kinds of mysticism. Our God is a spirit, 
And that spirit inhabits his children and witnesses to them and bears testimony to them and teaches them and sheds abroad his love until he can overwhelm the child of God with the sense of God's presence and God's goodness and God's love and God's acceptance of you. He can overwhelm you with those feelings from a spirit to your spirit. And that is what we want to have in our relationship with the Lord. Now the church at Ephesus was in Asia Minor, not far from the church at Laodicea, which we spoke of last Lord's Day. Paul visited the city of Ephesus in Asia on his second preaching trip when he was with Silas. He spent two years and three months there on his third trip. And before ending that trip, he had the teary farewell that you can read about in Acts chapter 20 when the elders of that church came out to the seashore and wept on his neck because it would be the last time they saw their beloved brother Paul. He left Aquila and Priscilla there after his first visit, and he left Timothy there after his second visit. And these things we read about in the book of Acts. Remember, this is what the Roman Empire looked like in the days of the New Testament. And there's Asia. What was known as Asia in the Bible was a province of the Roman Empire, not the continent of Asia as we use the word today. When we come in closer to that section of Asia, which was called Asia, which was western Turkey, we can find that right here is the uh, city of Ephesus. And right here we can see the city of Ephesus. It was on the seashore of the Aegean Sea, and it was a popular and very prosperous city, more so than any other city of the seven churches of Asia. And of course, you can see the Isle of Patmos where our beloved brother John was exiled and banished by Rome. Now the church at Ephesus, Paul wrote their epistle from prison. He makes mention of that in Ephesians chapter 6. If you read Ephesians and Colossians, you'll find out that they're fraternal twins. They're not identical, but they are very similar. Now when we read Ephesians, the epistle to the church at Ephesus, which is being addressed in the verses that I've read to you twice, Already this morning, we find that in chapter 1, they had already been sealed with the Holy Spirit after believing, which was the earnest of their inheritance. God's performance bond, God's down payment, God's guarantee that He was going to save them with an, uh, with an everlasting salvation, including their glorification. They were given the Holy Spirit as a seal. So they already had the Holy Spirit after believing, and it is described for us in Ephesians chapter 1. But one thing you need to always remember about the Holy Spirit, He has a variety of ministries, and He has a variety of relationships to the child of God. And you may have one by being born again, but you don't have much. There's a whole lot more than just being born again by the Spirit of God. Now the Ephesian saints had been sealed with the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was God's down payment that they would eventually realize heaven and glorification. When we go to chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians, we find out that the Holy Spirit had made the church at Ephesus His temple home. A habitation of God through the Spirit in the last few verses of chapter 2. So the Holy Spirit was in them as a church. So in chapter 1, there's a relationship of God, the Holy Spirit, with His Ephesian believers. In chapter 2, there's another relationship with those Ephesian believers corporately as a church. And yet we come to chapter 3, and the apostle is going to pray for another relationship. 
of the Holy Spirit with them. And you know, if we, if we were to go back here, we could go to verses 117 through about 119, and Paul is praying for the Holy Spirit to be a, the spirit of enlightenment, of enlightening them for them to know certain spiritual things better than they did. Now, these were Gentile converts of God's great mystery, and the apostle uses the second half of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3 to describe the fact that this was a mystery kept secret since the foundation of the world that Gentiles would be called in to the family of God. Paul prayed for their spiritual improvement here. This is the one we're going to work on today, chapter 3, and he told them to be praying for it in chapter 6. This church at Ephesus had no big issues like Corinth, like Galatia or Thessalonica. You know, Corinth had too many to mention. Galatia had added the works of the law and circumcision in order to be saved. They were guilty of heresy. The Thessalonians were so were too excited about the second coming of Jesus Christ that many of them had stopped working. They were busybodies wandering from house to house. And so the Apostle Paul had to deal very bluntly with them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 about that error. Yet, Paul left Timothy there, according to 1 Timothy 1.3, because of his doctrinal fear for them. Paul was afraid that the Ephesian church was not well established in doctrine and they might be led astray by some of the false teachers in that time. When John wrote them, though, in Revelation chapter 2, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were doctrinally sound. Jesus specifically mentions the fact that they were sound in doctrine and that they had tried those men that said they were apostles and had found them to be liars. So there were false apostles running around, sort of like we have in our own city. His name is Ron Carpenter, by the way. And they had found them to be liars. See, that's part of a church's business, is to take those that call themselves apostles and prove that they're lying. And so Ephesus had done that. But, remember, Jesus strongly condemned them for their loss of first love. Now this comes later, after the epistle of Paul to the church at Ephesus. But I want you to think a little bit about the church at Ephesus, there on the seashore of the Aegean Sea, a prosperous city where there was a church established where the apostle himself spent over two years and three months with them. And they loved him dearly, and he loved that church dearly. He warned them that men would arise among themselves to lead that church astray. But let's go to our passage and see what the Lord has to say to this church and us by it. This is the word of the Lord. You can look at your Bibles again because I'm going to read it to you again. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.14 For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this cause. Paul used these words to open Ephesians chapter 3, and his cause there was the fact that he was dealing with Gentiles being brought into the family of God. 
But why is he using it here again just 14 verses later? Because he's beginning a new argument. It's not about Gentiles. It's about a personal relationship with God and being filled with all the fullness of God. What's his goal? It's to know the love of Christ that we've just read three times in verse 16. Paul's purpose of life was for the glory of the Ephesians. Verse 13 tells us the cause that he enters into this discourse about a personal relationship with God. Ephesians 3.13 tells us, Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. The Ephesian church learns that the Apostle Paul is in prison. But he tells them, don't you faint because of my tribulations. My tribulations are for you. I'm your servant. I'm an apostle from God for you, bringing the truth of the gospel to you. Don't faint because my tribulations for you are for your glory. Everything Paul did was for the benefit of saints. And what he's about to embark on, explaining a personal relationship with God, was their glory. I bow my knees. Oh, brethren, what a what grand language we have that the apostle uses in Ephesians 3.14. We had better bow our knees, whether it's literally or figuratively, when we go to God. That is a position of humility. I still have never figured out why men would bow down on their knees to propose to a woman. I do not understand that at all. I hope you'll all think about it. It just doesn't make sense when we look at a verse like this, because we bow our knees when we approach God because He's greater, far greater. And we humble ourselves by getting down on our knees before someone who is important and someone who has the power not only of life and death over us, but the power of eternal life and eternal death. And so the Apostle opens up this little section of Scripture with grand language, for this cause I bow my knees. This is so important he's going to get down on his knees for the Ephesian church. It's good for prayer to get down on your knees. And Paul used it here for the great request of a personal relationship with God. On knees is good. And we could look at numerous Bible examples, whether it be Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, when he, as he had aforetime, heard the commandment of the king of Media, Darius, he went and flung open his windows facing Jerusalem, got down on his knees and prayed three times a day as he had always prayed. And that is the way the Apostle Paul prayed, if you were to read about him and his life. When did you last, and how often do you pray on your knees? Don't shout out any numbers. You need not embarrass yourself. But I want to ask you on the authority of God's Word in this passage, how often and when did you last pray on your knees? Now, when did you last pray on your knees? To walk closer to God. The Apostle Paul got down on his knees when he was praying for a church to walk closer to God. When did you last get down on your knees? It's sad. You know, you know what you'll get down on your knees for? If you get some scary health news. With all loving kindness. Big deal. Really. Big deal. So what? So you've got some terminal disease. And we get all worked up about that. But you know, to have a terminal disease means we're going to be with the Lord sooner. And that is a blessing if we understand the New Testament and believe it. But we get so worked up, we'll get down on our knees for things like that. 
you'll get down if you're afraid of losing your job. But what about walking closer to the Lord? And so I want us to think about those words. And the apostle bowed his knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to remember the relationship between God and Jesus. As great as Jesus is, and Revelation chapter 1 sure showed us his glorified greatness as he met the apostle John in that chapter, God is greater. The ordinary and usual form of prayer is to God the Father. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. Jesus is our perfect mediator and high priest to Almighty God. As was prayed in the back room this morning with the men that gathered before we opened our assembly, we have a new and living way made open to us into the very presence of God by the Lord Jesus Christ. Asking God in Jesus' name has Jesus' authority And He will do what you ask, and God the Father will do what you ask. And so we have Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul caring about the glory and the profitability and the blessing of the Ephesian church, of having a closer relationship with God, said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. What grand language. Did you know that you're part of a family that has a different last name? You know, our last names here in this world, well, let me say this lovingly and kindly as well, are nothing. Big deal. We are the sons of God. That's our last name. Son of God. Of whom? The words refer to either God the Father or the Lord Jesus Christ because they're the two persons of the 14th verse. But the object of Paul's prayer is God the Father. As Father of even Jesus Christ, He is certainly the Father of the elect and the believers at Ephesus. And we're all the children of God and thus named after the Father. And Paul will continue to refer to God the Father in the next verse. And so of whom we understand that to be God Himself He is the family that we're part of, God's family. We're His sons, His children, and He is even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our brother. The whole family. God's elect are a family of sons to God and their brothers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Romans 8.29? For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed unto the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus Christ is the firstborn Son. He's the preeminent son. He's the most important son. He's the great son, but he has a great deal of brethren. And Hebrews chapter 2 tells us he is not ashamed to call us brethren. And when we stand before God, he will call us brethren before Almighty God and say, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me, the other children in the family of God. Jesus will present us that way. Do you appreciate, I mean truly appreciate, Adoption and predestination as the children of God. Those are the words used in the Bible. We are predestinated to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. In Ephesians chapter 1, and that is verse 5. Predestinated is to have our destination determined beforehand. And what is that? But to be adopted by God. God did not adopt angels. There is no angel called a son of God in any sense of meaning, like it applies to you and me. But God adopted us, and it is a glorious thing. Angels are domestic servants to serve the heirs of God's kingdom, as Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 tell us. 
That's the whole family. We've got servants in the household of God, and we've got brothers and sisters in the household of God, and God's our Father, and Jesus Christ is our older brother, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. God's elect are mostly in heaven, with only a few here on earth, because there's been 6,000 years of world history in which God's children have gone to be with Him. In heaven, Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 12, are the spirits of just men made perfect. Their spirits are there. We may bury their bodies in a cemetery, and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back for those bodies, but their spirits are in heaven. That is why it says of Abraham, and it says of Isaac, and it says of Jacob, and it says of Moses, and it says of Aaron, that they were gathered to their people. Because when they died, their spirits went to be with their saved family members. Already in Ephesians 1, it tells us that Jesus Christ is going to pull us all together, those things that are in heaven and those things that are in earth. We're going to all be united in the greatest family reunion that you can possibly imagine. You can't imagine it. The family reunion we're going to have. Jesus will not lose a single one that God gave him. He testified so in John chapter 6. We are named after our Father, just as you would expect. Verse 16. What's the prayer for? For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Well, what's the prayer? That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Here is the Apostle's prayer request that ought to be our prayer request. That He would grant you wonderful words. That He would grant you. Now it says according to the riches of His glory. Does God have glory? Is God rich in glory? Is God able to grant things? That He would grant you. If you ever have anything good, it is because God granted it. Let me tell you something. It's because God granted it to you. You have nothing Based on your goodness, you have nothing. Based on your effort, it is by God granting it to you. If you ever accomplish any good, God granted you a blessing. Now you've read about land grants from the crown of England when men came to this country, but this trumps and exceeds them all. A grant from heaven. A grant from the God of glory. To grant something is to agree or consent to a request to bestow or confer something on someone. God has all the power. Our God and Father has all the wealth. We just need His grant to participate in what He is able to give. And He is willing, and He is eager, and He is ready to grant. If any man hear my voice and will open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. We just need that grant. Oh, that He would grant you. The Apostle Paul prayed. The Apostle Paul didn't have to pray that He would grant me. Because the Apostle Paul already had it. He was praying for a grant for the church at Ephesus according to the riches of his glory. There's no limit to the riches of God's glory to grant anything. If God grants it, who can stay it? What doors the Lord opens, who can close them? And when God closes, who can open? And if he blesses, who can hinder? And if he withholds, who can bless? This is our God that we're dealing with. But the apostle is laying before him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ a petition from his knees that I hope that we will pray from our knees that God would grant you and us and me according to the riches of his glory. There is is a blessing so glorious 
It requires God's riches. And that's the one we're looking at in this passage of Scripture. Not only is He rich in glory, but He's also kind in His grace and His mercy toward us. The grant of the Spirit, which is what we're here, look at this. It's the grant of the Spirit. This grant of the Spirit, which they did not yet have, though they had the Spirit as the earnest of their inheritance, chapter 1, though they had the Spirit in a measure to enlighten them about the things that God had done for them, chapter 1, though they had the Spirit inhabiting their corporate worship and assemblies as the habitation of God, there is another ministry of the Holy Spirit they did not have, and the Apostle was praying for that. It makes me sick, and it should make you sick. It's discouraging, and it's frustrating and angering, to read so much and hear so much today about the gift of tongues. You know, the least gift that God ever gave to the church was speaking in tongues. It's 2,000 times inferior to preaching. Can I prove that mathematical relationship? 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says that I would rather preach five words than to speak 10,000 words in tongues. I can prove it. Do you like it? Why in the world would they ever seek for speaking in tongues when preaching is 2,000 times better? Why would they seek for speaking in tongues the least gift in the church? Do you know that a, a deacon has to get binoculars on to look down the ladder far enough to find the gift of tongues? That's while he's in scrubbing a latrine for the widows. He's got to look down with binoculars to find the gift of tongues. And it's long gone. That gift of tongues was for the apostolic ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's so much emphasis being on the Spirit for tongues, but we want the Spirit for something far greater, and that is to be in communion and to walk with God, and yea, to be filled with all the fullness of God is where we're headed. To be strengthened with might by His Spirit. It says of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God that He moved upon the face of the waters. Did anything happen? Dry land appeared. It says of Samson that the Spirit moved him at times out of his camp at Dan. Did he do some pretty impressive things when the Spirit of God moved Samson? Did the Spirit of God turn the world upside down with some fishermen from Galilee? This is the work of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God came upon King Saul, the first king of Israel, he was a timid man. And when it was the day of his coronation, he could not be found because this seven-foot man was hiding in the stuff. He was a timid man. After the Holy Spirit came on Saul, was he a timid man? When a, when a nation, a foreign nation, accosted Israel, he took a yoke of oxen, chopped them in 12 pieces, FedExed them to the 12 tribes, and said, if you're not here by this time tomorrow, I'm going to do this to your flocks and herds. Now, that's a, a changed man. The, the Peter was afraid of a little maidservant of the high priest when he was standing there warming himself during Jesus' trial. A timid man. But after the Holy Spirit filled Peter, what was he like at the day of Pentecost? Described in Acts chapter 2. Three, four, five, ten. Peter was great by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be strengthened with might by His Spirit. 
God is able to strengthen your inner man by giving you a greater awareness and comprehension and understanding and appreciation and affection for spiritual things by His power. Your natural man cannot help you. Preaching by itself cannot help you. It is by the power of the Spirit of God. It is this mighty power that can strengthen the child of God. Not strengthen your body. Strengthen your soul and spirit. Strengthen your heart. Strengthen the place where God speaks and witnesses and testifies to the human soul. Paul prayed for this grant to the the church at Ephesus. Do you pray for it? We need to make this an important part of our praying that God would grant us His Spirit for the things that He's about to lay before us. In the inner man. The inner man is not directly, and I do not want to distract some of you that like too many details for your own good in a passage like this. Because what's important in this passage is that you get filled with all the fullness of God. Your new man doesn't need strengthening. Your new man is already created in righteousness and true holiness. But there is a third party in you, and it's you. The Apostle Paul would say, I myself, when he is distinguishing himself from his old nature and his new nature. It's you, it's the inner you, it's the decision-making apparatus of you that makes a choice either to put on the new man or to leave on the old man. There's three parties involved. They're not really persons. When we refer to the old man, the new man, those are natures in you. Those are instinctive desires in you. When God regenerates us, He works in us both to will and to do of God's good pleasure. That is a new nature. It doesn't need strengthening. You need strengthening to put off the old man and to put on the new man and to comprehend the things of God in your decision-making apparatus that is inside you. Thus, the deep expression, the inner man. Do not waste more time in your minds chasing the bark on a tree and miss the forest. I almost wanted to neglect these four words. The strength that he is asking from the Holy Spirit for the church at Ephesus was not their bodies, was not their outward man. The outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed. God is able to renew us from the inside out, and that's where we need it. We even know in in personal human relations that when we are very close to another person and in love with them and they're loving us, whatever those words mean to you, there's a turning of our stomach. There's bowels of movement inside us. That is what God is able to do. For those of you that have been in love, loved someone and they loved you, and the best moments you ever had with them, there was something going on inside you. Now it would flow out and give you a cheerful countenance. It would flow out and defeat the laws of gravity because you would walk wherever you were going a foot off the earth. Remember? Well, the Lord is able to do that in our inner man as well. He can overwhelm you. He can overwhelm you. Overwhelm you. Love that passeth knowledge. He can overwhelm you with love and goodness and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and acceptance and adoption to where you are filled with all the fullness of God. Have you ever had times where you thought you were in love with someone so much and their love to you meant so much that you thought you might have a heart attack? 
that you didn't know if you could sustain the feelings, that it was just so deep, so precious, flush it. I mean, they're, they're, they're precious and they're good, but it's nothing compared to this. It's nothing compared to this. And this is the one that we want, and it's your inner man. If you're going to do anything great in your spiritual life, the ability to do it must come by the power of the Holy Ghost. I can't do it for you. I can't preach you into it. And you can't muster it up. We're going to go to God and ask for a grant. Lord, will you grant me a greater measure of your spirit today? Lord, will you grant me that I might see your glory? Did Moses get an answer to his prayer? Lord Jesus, would you come in and sup with me? Verse 17, this prayer that is building, and it takes the power of the Holy Ghost, and it takes a grant from Almighty God that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Jesus can live in the heart. It is a mystery in that the natural man does not know anything about it, but it is not mysticism. We don't sit around in a yoga position waiting for something like this to happen. This is God, the eternal spirit, by his Holy Spirit, inhabiting his children who open themselves to him and ask for a grant from heaven that they might have a closer walk with God and have the love of Christ revealed to them more perfectly in greater detail for their greater pleasure and glory. Jesus can live in the heart. Did you read in John chapter 14 last night, maybe you read it again this morning, where Jesus said, I will come to you. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and He doesn't move. He is at the right hand of God and you should be thankful He doesn't move. He is at the right hand of God because He's making intercession for you. However, by His Spirit, He comes to you. He actually said, it is expedient for you that I go away. When I think of being with the Lord Jesus Christ face to face and holding His ankles and embracing Him and seeing His glorified wounds, I can't imagine anything being expedient to leave Him or for Him to leave me. But do you know what the Bible says? It is expedient for you that I go away. Well, when I read John 14, instead of being out here where I can touch Him, where I can embrace Him, where I can grab his ankles, and when I, where I can lie in his bosom, or you, I'm speaking for all of you, I hope, lie in his bosom at supper, he's in us. Now which do you want? I say it's expedient. The Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven, interceding Almighty God as my lawyer, guaranteeing my eternal life and your eternal life. But he is dwelling inside me by his Spirit, Because His Spirit is able to relate and communicate with my spirit, and He does so on the inside. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. The only means that we have is to believe the things God tells us. That is, all God asks in this relationship is to believe. If thou canst believe, all things are possible. 
believe. Now when it says that He dwells in our hearts by faith, He's bodily in heaven, but He inhabits those hearts by the Spirit. And I'm not talking about the, the vessel in our chest that's pumping blood. I'm talking about the inner spirit of us that feels, that loves, that hates, that desires, that hopes, that dreams, that has peace, that has joy. That inner part of you, Christ dwells in it by His Spirit, speaking to it, encouraging it, comforting, and shedding abroad the love of God in that inner part of you. The Spirit is called the Spirit of God's Son in this passage right here where it says God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts whereby we cry, Abba, Father. What makes us at times, and oh, I wish it were all the time, and we should pray for it to be more of the time. What causes us to cry out, Abba, Father? What causes you to know that you're a child of God? Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, talking to you on the inside. If you were to compare right now, and I'm, if you were to compare right now in a scale of your mind and your judgment, when you have been most deeply in love with another human person, no matter who that would be, whether it's a spouse, a, 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 a friend, a, a lover in that sense, a friend of the same sex, like Jonathan and David, a parent, a sibling, well, whatever. Is that relationship, when you think about it, was it more overpowering to you than the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and His Father in heaven? They shouldn't even be close. Because this one is by the power of the Holy Spirit. The other one, you really don't want me to tell you what it is. It's really all not that noble. It's really a four-letter word that starts with L, and it doesn't have a V in it. But that's for another time. I just want you to think about that, and that God can overwhelm you by Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith. Faith is the vehicle. Faith is the means by which we embrace the Word coming to us. Sometimes the Word is outward that's being preached to us. Sometimes the Word is outward being that you're reading from God's Word. Other times it's inside of you bearing witness to you, and you believe. You believe it. The war has been won. God's been reconciled. But the message of reconciliation, whether it's from a preacher, from the Bible, or from the Spirit is, be ye reconciled to God. And all you have to do is embrace it. And you'll know you're reconciled. That's, that's the only role that faith has in here. This is by the power of God. God's doing the preaching on the inside through the Holy Spirit, and we believe it. By faith, we receive the Spirit's witness of Christ. That verse is going to have to wait. Oh, I love this verse. It just keeps working on me to make it the favorite verse in the Bible. Jesus promised this very thing to the apostles, which you read in John chapter 14 that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Spirit, strength, and faith will have Jesus Christ dwelling there in a more real, more manifestative way than otherwise. A manifestative way means that He is manifesting things to you. He is disclosing Himself to you. He is revealing Himself to you. The world does not know this, and the average child of God does not know very much of this at all. The average Christian is a joke. When we look at the Word of God and measure a Christian by what the Bible describes, notice this church at Ephesus. This was Paul's church. 
And yet, there was a need that they had in Ephesians chapter 3 for him to pray on his knees for them to have it. And it wasn't the Spirit as a seal, chapter 1. It wasn't the Spirit as an enlightenment, chapter 1. It wasn't the Spirit inhabiting their church, chapter 2. It was inside them. Spirit, strength, and faith. Jesus in our heads by doctrine. Oh, we can do better. We want Jesus in our hearts by faith. Jesus in our tongues by word. Oh, we can do better. Jesus in our hearts by faith. This is not faith for Christ knowledge. Do you understand? This is not faith for Christ knowledge. This is for Christ presence. You're not just jotting down fact, 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 fact. This is... This is reaching out and embracing a personal message being shed abroad by the sunlight of God Himself in your heart that He loves you, that you are His Son, that He will never lose you, that He is blessing you in whatever moment that you might be having, that it is from Him and you embrace that. It's not facts. It's not head knowledge. That's, a, that's an important part of faith, but it's not this part that I'm talking about right here. This is spirit-strengthened and spirit-induced Faith that lays hold of Christ's testimony inside you. Is this incomprehensible? Nearly. Is it unbelievable? Certainly. But it's a true fact. And I believe it because the Bible says it. That ye being rooted and grounded in love. The foundation. You know, when we look at the words rooted and grounded, we we should think of a foundation. The foundation of a Christian. And for your greatness as a Christian is to know the love of God for you. Also in the prayer meeting earlier this morning, a brother prayed and made reference to 1 John chapter 3. Behold! Behold! What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. It's the foundation of a Christian's life. Rooted. When you're rooted in love, it's a lesson from trees where roots are key for that foundation. When you're grounded in love, it's reference to buildings where a foundation is key. What can possibly move a soul established on God's love? And the more, the more that you submit and humble yourself to God and seek this blessing of His personal presence, that is the number one thing He communicates is His love for us. We talk about love songs. We talk about love feelings. Everybody wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be pursued by someone. But there is a God pursuing His children that loves them, and that is the message. It's not the power of God. It's not the holiness of God. It is the love of God. Behold, what holiness the Father hath? No. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. This passage is about love. And the foundation of a Christian's life is the love of God toward him. But then there is an edifice to be built on that foundation that is coming in the next verse. In its dimensions of Christ's love. Because it is Jesus Christ that displays and manifests the love of God toward us. That he would send his only begotten son to lay down his life for us. If you grasp your adoption, it will change your life. It changed Paul's life. It should change our lives. That we may be able to comprehend. Now we've got a foundation established. The love of God for us. That we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. 
Without spirit, we, we, we need ability. See this word right here? Able. You need ability to be able to lay hold of this. Not the facts of it, the experimental knowledge of it. May be able to comprehend, to get your arms around it, to get your mind around it, to get your heart around it, to grasp it, to pull it in, to delight in it, to appreciate it, to understand it. Without spiritual enlightenment, you cannot know any of these things because they're spiritually discerned. The mystery of the gospel is that natural men cannot know this. Paul had already prayed once for their enlightenment. There's no sermon, argument, music, or any natural means that can bring this about. To comprehend something is to grasp and understand it fully. And the Apostle Paul is asking for a grant from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit for you to be strengthened with might in your inner man for you to be able to do this. This is not just some little mere mere intellectual exercise where you believe some verse of Scripture. This is Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith and God testifying to you by His Spirit that He loves you and you are embracing it by faith. By the power of God enabling your inner man to believe what is being presented to you. To grasp it. To draw it in. To open the door. To sup. With all saints. The desire of a godly man is for all God's children to advance to this level. This is what we should want for every one of us in this assembly and for everyone else the Lord puts in our path. The common bond that we have is God's love for His children. Don't we all know that? After gaining spiritual heights in God's love ourselves, we should want to share that with others. Our evangelistic efforts should progress toward this top goal. It is this knowledge, the love of God for us, that we share with Christ lovers worldwide. Some of you hear me, and I hope all of you understand me, that I will read an email to you from someone in the world, and we will automatically, we will instinctively, we will immediately love that person. Why? Because they understand the love of Christ. And they are overwhelmed by the love of Christ. And we're overwhelmed by the love of Christ. And we know that we're both over, we're both loved by Christ. And there's that bond between us, though we've never seen them face to face. Though we know very little about them, we know from their testimony that they know they're loved of God and they're loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And they appreciate and are thankful for that love and they love Him in return. And it affects us. I've had some of you come to me this morning and could not believe the humility of a man dealing with the natives in Malaysia that wrote this week. That's what we're referring to when we talk about with all saints. This is the bond that we have. What is the breadth and length and depth and height? And it's going to go to Christ's love because we have a foundation of God's love for us, but then we build an edifice on it from the inside out by God testifying to us by the power of His Spirit what great things Jesus Christ did for us. It is not just merely, and I have made my efforts to add up all the different kinds of suffering that Jesus Christ went through in Gethsemane, Pilate's Judgment Hall, Herod's Judgment Hall, and on the cross. I've talked about his physical pain. I've talked about his emotional pain. I've talked about his separation from God. I've talked about all of his disciples leaving. And we can add all those up and put plus signs and try to come up with some mathematical result. That isn't what I'm talking about. It's that being witnessed from the inside by the Spirit of the living God to your spirit. What is the breadth? From the foundation, the foundation of God's love for us, rooted and grounded in love. A Christian is very quickly rooted and grounded in love if he's listening at all to the preaching of the gospel. And that's his foundation. 
But then, by the Spirit of God, there can come an overwhelming shedding abroad of Christ's love in that person's soul if they're not quenching the Spirit, if they're not grieving the Spirit, if they're praying for it, if they're opening the door for Christ to come in and to sup with them and and them with He. From the foundation, we want the full structure of Christ's love for us. You say, this sounds pretty mystical. Yeah, probably does. Because we love a mathematical religion. We love a handbook religion. So do I. I'm a handbook kind of a guy. I'm rows and columns. I want a spreadsheet. I want to be able to hit calc. And it's going to give me a sum that's the sum of Christ's love for me. But this is spiritual, and it's on the inside, and there's no calculators. It is flat out overwhelming by the power of the Spirit of God to our own spirits. The breadth, the breadth of his love took in even Gentiles in America. Aren't you thankful for the breadth of his love? The length of his love stretches from election in eternity past to glorification in eternity future. The depth of his love reaches to the most depraved sinner. Did it even reach to you? Is that depth? The height of his love carries those rebels all the way to God's throne. Oh, and he's able to convince us of it so that we cry out, Abba, Father. And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And to know the love of Christ. So here's where Paul's been aiming, to know the love of Christ. Well, didn't they already know about the love of Christ? Why did he baptize them? Paul, you got some things out of order. Why did you baptize these Ephesian saints when they didn't yet know the love of Christ? Are you all with me? There's another level of the love of Christ far beyond. Jesus died on the cross for you. That you hear through these two holes. This is experimental knowledge of Him bearing witness of Himself by the Spirit to your heart. We should see its dimensions, which we just mentioned, and I mentioned a few of them, but we want to know it experimentally. Experimentally means to have a personal, to have a personal cognizance, recognition, awareness, appreciation of it personally that you have felt, that you have known, that you have embraced. We want to know it experimentally. The love of Christ more than doctrinal knowledge. It is intimate pleasure in Christ's love. It was Jesus Christ's love for Paul that drove him. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul, late in his life, was still seeking to know Christ. When you read Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 14, that I may know him, still, toward the end of his life. Some know some pretty high feelings of love, but this exceeds when we allow the Holy Spirit in his strength to witness to our spirits, it is a sense of the love of Christ for us that overwhelms. Just like you think you've been overwhelmed by the love of just another person towards you. To know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. How can you know something that's past knowing? By the Spirit of God. How is it past knowing? Because there, there's, no, there's no addition, multiplication, or squaring of facts to come up with the right sum of the matter. The human mind cannot grasp Christ's love for, for His people. It doesn't make any sense. The human experience has never seen anything like it. 
My ways and thoughts are higher than your ways and thoughts as the heaven is above the earth. And it's referring to the forgiveness that we have in God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul used this lofty form of speech elsewhere. He he used it back in verse 8 of the same chapter. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, if they're unsearchable, how's Paul going to preach them? Because we preach them as well as we are able, but God the Holy Spirit makes up the difference on the inside of us comprehending, knowing, embracing, and having experimental knowledge of His love for us. You want love? You think you know love? You know nothing unless you get excited about this love. That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. The ultimate for the Christian is spirit-enhanced knowledge of Christ's love testified from the inside out in the inner man. Muse on this possibility. Muse on this from these words, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice, it says filled. Filled. How much is remaining? How much space is there left? None. And how much of God's fullness do you have? All of it. And how much of God do you have? The full measure. Of whom? Of God. That's just too much. That is just unbelievable. Well, now I understand why Paul started off with such grand language. For this cause, I bow my knees to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He might grant you to be strengthened with might by His Spirit. In the, oh, now I understand all that. Because He's building up to a climax that is hard to believe. Filled with all the fullness of God. God fills heaven and earth. He is not going to cram all of His Spirit into you. But all that God can communicate to another spirit in the universe, He will give you all of that by the strengthening power of the Holy Spirit operating on your spirit to have that inner man strengthened enough to receive what He's able to shed abroad in your heart. This does not happen automatically. The second assembly that we're going to have today, we are going to look at some facts and some terms that need to be in place in your life for you to experience this. But this is the promise. This is the prayer request. This is the opportunity. And look at this possibility. Filled with all the fullness of God. You think at times that you've been filled with someone else. Someone else has overwhelmed your little heart. We call it the pitter-patter of puppy love. We call it lots of other things. This is God Himself. This is... This is wonderful. This is what we want to aim for. This is what Paul wanted to write a church after he had spent two years and three months with them. There was something more. It wasn't God the Holy Spirit as a seal, chapter 1. It wasn't God the Holy Spirit enlightening their minds, chapter 1. It wasn't God the Holy Spirit, the candlestick, indwelling them as a church, chapter 2. It is this. A poor, weak spiritual condition is generally due to neglect. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if you've never known what I'm talking about, if you haven't even had moments tending in this direction, it's your fault due to neglect. This is the ultimate in fellowship by faith with God's presence. 
that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. It's the ultimate. It's a, it's a matter of fellowship by faith with God's presence talking to you, testifying to you, not audibly, inside, to where you're bursting with love. And you can't tell him strongly enough how much you love him because he is telling you how much he loves you and you're overwhelmed by it. This is more than what you can muster. The Spirit has to do it. Hopefully you can tell that from the prayer. It was this fellowship for full joy that John described in 1 John chapter 1 as to why he wrote the things that he did about the life that was from the beginning. Religion that offers an opportunity like this exceeds all else in life, doesn't it? That the infinite God would take up an abode with men on an individual basis, if any man. The fullest measure of enjoying God's presence is by love. I love the sovereignty of God. Love the power of God. The majesty of God. The holiness of God. The infinity, the independence, the immortality, the invisibility. We can just go through all the attributes. But do you know which one He wants to shed abroad in our hearts? The one we need the most. The one that comforts us here in this world until we're in His presence forever. And that is His love and the love of Christ for us. Paul's character was very different from other men by what we've just looked at right here. And he didn't want it for himself. He wanted it for the Ephesian saints and all saints, including us. What heights of joy are here What strength for depth of pain. He could be in an innermost prison, shouting and singing praises, and all the prisoners heard them. That's loud. Filled with all the fullness of God. This is to have the greatest measure of God's presence in you, bearing witness to your spirit. This is to have the greatest awareness of all that God is. It's to have the greatest friendship between two spirits. This is to know overwhelming acceptance, affection, and hope. By Him, through the Spirit of God, this is to have an overwhelming sense of God's goodness towards you, to you, and forever. Filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with God? How can it be? If we believe the Bible, it says so. Filled with all the fullness of God. All that He can testify. All that He can share. All that He can speak to our souls in the way of peace and relief, comfort and love. It's the fullness of God. It's as much as we can have, filled with all the fullness of God. The Bible clearly testifies that God actively dwells in His people. God is infinite, and since you're finite, He can easily overwhelm you. This is overwhelming joy and peace described in the Bible. Does the Bible, does the Bible mention something called joy unspeakable? Help me out. I'm, I'm struggling with my memory. Does the Bible say something? I think it might be. New Testament, maybe First Peter, maybe chapter 1, maybe verse 8? Is there joy unspeakable? Is there peace that passes understanding? Well, how does that happen? God the Holy Spirit, strengthening your inner man to comprehend God, speaking peace to your soul and giving joy to your soul. God is, God is our Father, wants to overwhelm His children with Himself. If you would... If you went to some poor country in the world, and listen, I can't describe a poor country as poor as we were when God found us in the orphanage of sinners, but let's say you went to a poor country and you adopted someone, you brought them home to big, fat, luxurious, peaceful America. Would you be tempted? Would you have a little bit of a desire? I don't know why you adopted in the first place unless you were already planning to do this. To overwhelm them. 
with goodness. Would you be wanting to do that? You're used to sleeping in a room with seven other children and it was only eight by nine? Well, I've got a 15 by 12 bedroom for you all by yourself. And look at this mattress. It's two feet deep and it's stuffed on top of two feet of box springs. And on and on and on you would go. I will always protect you. No one will ever bust through the doors of this house to haul you captive. You would want to overwhelm a child that you adopted. Well, guess what? He's going to show us the riches of His glory and He's never going to exhaust them because eternity isn't long enough and you aren't big enough. But He wants to overwhelm us and He does by filling us with all the fullness of God even before we get to heaven. John 14, 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. John 14, 21, we're asking the question, can it be true, filled with God? Can it possibly be true? Is there anywhere else in the Bible that speaks to this fact? He shall be loved of my Father. There is greater love from God than you have known before. God loves you more than you know. How else can I tell you? God can tell you about loving you more than you've ever heard Him tell you that He loves you. Because this verse says so. John 14, 21. There is greater love from Christ than you have known before. Jesus Christ will manifest Himself to you. Have we defined the word manifest before? To reveal something that was previously unknown. He'll manifest it to you. Jesus explained to Judas that the world cannot have this blessing. Verse 23 of John 14. Jesus answered and said unto him, that is Judas, not Iscariot, if a man love me, I want you to be with me, he will keep my words and my Father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Look at those words. My Father will love him. Now wait a minute. I thought the Father already loved him. Why is it using the future tense? I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3 Why is it a future tense right here? Will love. Will come. There is greater love from God than you have known before. God and Jesus will visit you like you have not known before. God and Jesus will stay with you in this unprecedented way, meaning you haven't known it before. This is sadly not the experience of most or many Christians. They do not know this. They are not taught this. They are hearing today a sermon like, your best life now. Who's preaching that sermon? Joel Osteen. Your best life now. I appreciate John MacArthur, who who recently, in one of his sermons, said, if it's their best life now, Joel and his whole church is going to hell. I loved him for that. I wanted to send him a donation. That's after he said that Joel Osteen is a pagan and preaches paganism. Now, John MacArthur is a gentleman, but I loved him. You can go, go, go to a Google search box and type in YouTube, then go to the YouTube search box and type in John MacArthur, Joel Pagan. Now, why did I chase that little rabbit? Because they're talking about your best life now. But do you know what he's talking about? Getting promoted on the job. Making more money. Getting your debts paid off. Getting in shape. Getting that belly down from 38 inches to 33 inches. Yeah, that's what he's talking about, your best life now. 
So they don't ever hear about this. They don't take it. There's no verses preached in Joel Osteen's church. John 14, 23, look at that. My Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Hello? Are you... Is this real? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. The Bible does teach this. Paul assumed that it was a given fact of the gospel that the Spirit is in believers. Jesus bought our bodies by His death, so the Spirit lives there. Most Christians ruin this verse by worrying about tobacco. It's amazing. Walk up to the average Christian and say, What does 1 Corinthians 6.19 mean to you? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? You shouldn't smoke. Oh, you're kidding me. Really? Really? Why are you so ignorant of the Bible? This verse isn't anything about smoking. The person that criticized smoking probably drinks sugar, eats sugar. They're just as bad for your health. Diabetes is more of a killer than lung cancer. I don't want to go any farther down that wasted trail. But why in the world would they waste a verse of Scripture about tobacco? That's not how you defile the temple of the Holy Ghost. All you have to do is back up and read the previous six verses, and it's talking about fornication. It's talking about a Christian going and jumping into bed and becoming one flesh with a prostitute. That is what defiles the temple of the living God because the Holy Spirit is in your body, and the Holy Spirit doesn't want to be coupled by sexual intercourse with a prostitute. That is what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 18, before you get to this 19th verse. But they corrupt the Word of God and they steal from people the wonderful concept of our body being the temple of the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost being in our bodies can testify to our spirits more than He has before. Paul condemned moral pollution like fornication, not some smoke entering your lungs. Therefore, to honor and please the Spirit, we want to control our inputs because the Spirit is inside us. My verse now, Romans fifteen thirteen. Now the God of hope fill you Oh, that's a familiar word. Fill you with all. Now that's a familiar word. Fill you and all. Joy and peace in believing. Oh, that's a familiar word, except here it's believing instead of faith. That ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost, strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man, by the power of the Holy Ghost. Well, it's just a choice to be joyful. The Bible says, rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. Yep, that's your part in, that's your part in the equation. But what's the Lord's part in the equation? He can fill you with joy unspeakable from the inside out. God is able to fill His children with all joy. How much is that? How about all peace? How much is that? He's the God of hope, so that He can make you abound in hope. How does God do it? By the power of the Holy Ghost. God is with us. In His Spirit, Jesus is with us by God's Spirit. God and Jesus have come to us and are abiding with us by the Spirit of God. Romans 5, 5, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. 
The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Notice, again, it is the Holy Ghost. Notice what is shed abroad. The love. What does abroad mean? There is no nook or cranny in the human soul that is wanting for love when God the Holy Spirit is unfettered and you are filled with the Holy Ghost to convince you that God loves you. You would not mind if you got struck with the big one. You would ask for the big one because you want to be with Him who loves you so much. This is Romans 5, 5. God the Holy Spirit sheds abroad the love of God in the human heart. This is the fifth blessing listed by Paul that flows from faith in the first five verses of that fifth chapter of Romans. The Spirit tells the soul that He is God's child. He bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. This is no flickering candle, but the sunlight of the Holy Spirit of God shedding abroad His broad rays in your heart. God's an infinite, invisible Spirit, and He dwells inside men. Isn't that incredible? The Spirit of God. Jonathan and David loved each other as their own souls, but this is greater. I'd rather have the Lord Jesus Christ and God His Father than I would either Jonathan or David or both. Men like Abraham and Asaph knew about this. I am your exceeding great reward. Whom have I in heaven or on earth beside thee? John received John's fullness and grace for grace. John 1.16 And we have received of his fullness and grace for grace. John was just overwhelmed when he started his gospel, let alone when he started his epistle. The church is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I think I need to say that again so that you understand it. It's Ephesians chapter 1. You should be close at hand. Do you know what it says about the church? Do you know what it says about you? Which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I thought he fills us with all the fullness of God. He does. But do you know what else the Bible says? The church is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Without the church, without all saints, without all things in heaven and earth, Jesus Christ and God are incomplete. No. God is infinitely perfect with... He's made Himself incomplete. How do you think Jacob could win in a wrestling match? He made Himself vulnerable to men. How How can we be the fullness of Him that filleth all in all? Unbelievable. Most Christians never experience it, my brethren. Church and religion are not personal to them. They're not, it's not passionate to them. They have a form of godliness, like the Bible warns us, but they love the pleasures of this world more, and they're cutting themselves so short. They live carnal lives without ever fully selling out to Jesus Christ. They're content to warm pews and eat at church potlucks. What will you do for God's fullness? Or are you going to be just like them? Do you know what to do? We'll find out after our break. May God bless the preaching of His Word. And may God the Holy Spirit convict each one of you that there is something that you have not yet reached. And while you're alive in this world, you'll not reach it in its fullness. Because even our brother Paul said that I may know Him. In Philippians chapter 3, 8-14. through 14. Amen.